0: system produces one of those quintessentially American characters who co-ops the energy of the presidential voting cycle to become a national celebrity and elevate an obscure social movement into greater popular visibility. In 2016, that person was my guest, Zoltan Istvan, who propelled himself and the transhumanist movement into international notoriety by touring the United States as a candidate for president on the Transhumanist Party ticket promising to end death as he drove across the country in the immortality bus designed to look like a coffin. It was a great gimmick that worked like a charm. Isfan was interviewed countless times and featured in stories in some of the most prominent media in the world, including the New York Times and The Guardian. In 2020, Isfan made headlines again, this time by running in the Republican presidential primaries. His purpose in all he does is to popularize transhumanism a futuristic social movement that seeks to create a post-human future freed from suffering. The movement looks to technology as the means of attaining the long-held human dream of immortality and the more modern yearning for radical individual bodily self-transformation. I see it as a dangerous form of eugenics belief. Sultan and I have jousted in the public square over our differences for many years, but we have very friendly relations and I look forward to a fascinating conversation. Zoltan Istvan is an American transhumanist, journalist, entrepreneur, political candidate, and futurist. Formerly a reporter for the National Geographic channel, he now writes futurist, transhumanist, secular, and politically-themed articles for major media, including the New York Times, Vice's Motherboard, Wired, the Huffington Post, TechCrunch, and Newsweek. Istvan regularly appears on television and video channels discussing futuristic topics. He is widely perceived as one of the world's most influential transhumanists and is the author of The Transhumanist Wager, a philosophical science fiction novel. Zoltan, welcome to Humanize. Thank you so much for having me. Well, it's great to have you. Um, You spend an awful lot of energy promoting transhumanism. What caused you to become so dedicated to this particular cause?
1: Well, you know, I think to primarily is that i i just don't want to die i like life i uh, love life i think it's great and um you know transhumanism's primary goal is to try to overcome death with science and technology and so if you're going to do a you know a life goal this is my life goal to try not to die uh and transhumanism uses science in a real way to try to do that and so uh i go around promoting it as a way to preserve my life my family's life my wife's life people i love and uh, hopefully all of humanity
0: that's interesting. You uh, told me in an interview that uh, I uh, had with you when I wrote uh, t- an article on you for the uh, National Review that you almost were killed uh, in Vietnam. And that's when you kind of came to this uh, understanding that this was your your life's work. Describe that just a bit.
1: Sure. When I was working um, for the National Geographic Channel as a journalist, uh, I was doing a story on bomb diggers where the Vietnamese people unearthed. Uh, bombs that didn't explode during the Vietnam War and sell the metal. Uh, but the, unfortunately, the the entire area, the demilitarized zone, is just filled with landmines. And so I had a very cl- close call with a landmine that I didn't see that was sort of half buried in the ground. And my guide sort of kind of pushed me, tackled me halfway and said, look, look what you almost stepped on. And um, it just became this, this big nuclear bomb kind of thing went off in my brain in the sense that I was so afraid of what almost happened, what could have happened, and it just scarred me in a way that I thought I need to do something to overcome death. I, it, it struck with me, it, it stuck with me for, you know, for, I guess, years and years is what can I do to overcome death? Well, transhumanism is the most logical movement to join if you want to do something, uh, you know, personally in that movement. And so that's what happened in Vietnam and how it caused me to kind of dedicate all my time and energy to uh, overcoming death.
0: So you got basically got the hell scared out of you <laughs> and that uh that changed your life.
1: Yes, yes. And you have to understand because I was doing this story for, you know, over a week and walking across fields that I knew had perhaps had some mines in them, unexploded ordinances, whatever. It was like it was building up to this moment every single day going out on this job was just terrible because you were always worried, you were interviewing amputees who had already stepped on landmines that were doing this bomb digging. So it was just a a mind-wrecking story and then finally for this incident to happen on the last day just really kind of pushed me overboard in a psychological way that has remained very powerful with me and you have to understand before this i had covered a lot of conflict zones for national geographic so i'd seen some horrible stuff and um that in itself was kind of preparing me uh you know like getting me this giving this idea that wow death is this horrible thing when you've seen so many graves so many mutilated people whatnot um you know, and then this moment happened in Vietnam, which just really pushed me over the edge. And I, I decided after that day that everything I would do would be dedicated to transhumanism.
0: And you wrote a novel even uh, after that called The Transhumanist Wager. What is that about?
1: It's really the story of Jethro Knights, a man who would do anything to uh, live indefinitely through science. It's kind of like what you might imagine the, uh, uh, some people think it's like a manifesto, but it's more just the idea of how far are you willing to go in order to achieve an indefinite lifespan through science. And the novel sets up uh, uh, religious people, uh, uber kind of believers, (laughs) you know, born again Christians that absolutely hate transhumanism because there's no reason to uh, overcome death. In fact, death should be welcomed by many uh, Christians because you get to go meet God. Well you know there's a there's a juxtaposition and a contrast between the two characters as well as Christianity in the book and Jethro you know overwhelms uh, the Christians in the end with his ideas and philosophies at least in my fictional novel <laughs> yes
0: <laughs> the good guys win right
1: <laughs> in my per- interpretation sure
0: <laughs> so so that's interesting because um, a lot of people, and, and I'm one of them. You know, I'm a Christian, but that's that's not why I oppose transhumanism. Uh, but people look at, you know, death gives life meaning. the The idea that uh, we have a limited time here, that it is finite, uh, really, it seems to me, focuses us uh, on getting the most out of life, regardless of what may come next. And the idea of transhumanism that you're, which I think is utopian but that you're going to somehow uh, harness technology, and we'll get into some of the proposed techniques in a bit, to, um, to live, uh, let's say, indefinitely, because you know, immortality is even, I think you would agree, that at some point the sun's going to explode and that kind of thing. But let's say live indefinitely. Doesn't that, uh, doesn't that take away some of the, the drive to, to lead a good, uh, righteous, and meaningful life?
1: Well, I mean, I think that is the main argument for many, many people, not just Christians, against living indefinitely. The idea that, you know, having death kind of creates value in the, in the situation, in the life. But, uh, you know, you have to understand that the, the overall transhumanist philosophy, so far we've only talked about overcoming death, but transhumanism is really about going off planet, becoming cyborgs, becoming different types of entities, merging with artificial intelligence. How far can the complexity of the human mind uh, be expanded to become something probably completely and totally different, almost in the difference between, let's say, an ant and a human being. One day our future selves in 100, 200, or 1,000 years will be quite, quite different than who we are today in terms of complexity. And what's very important in terms of the argument of whether you know, you know uh, there's value in death is there's also value in what the future holds. Um, the complexity of the human mind, because of artificial intelligence and maybe merging with it in 50 years, could be growing so fast that value is something that changes under those interpretations. Like if, if you know, the Ray Kurzweil and some of the singularity is ne- uh, near kind of ideas actually works out and our minds, are the c- computational possibilities keeps expanding, then we're never gonna get bored and we're never gonna have a lack of value because we're gonna be constantly rediscovering what life is in terms of this complexity that's ever increasing. So there is a sense that value can be obtained in a life that continually expands, especially when it ta- comes to technology. So that's my counter to that argument. Yes, you're right, though, you know, by uh, eliminating death, you certainly uh, take away some of the value of life, but you're getting value from this other side of transhumanism, which is the, the expansion of our possibilities of, of consciousness and, and who we can be through technology.
0: We'll, we'll get into some of those proposals, um, but but that brings up the another one of my problems with it is it's almost when you talked about you know we'll be like um, worms or or lower lives uh, in the future. It's almost like a Superman. Um, theology or ideology better, not a theology, an ideology. And it's also very utopian. And I worry that the, uh, in in fact, I was going to get into some of the things you've said. I might as well do it now. You've said, you know, the, the ends justify the means. And you've even, I saw you give a speech back in uh, Berkeley, I believe, in which you said that if uh, a government tried to thwart the development of transhumanism, that was worth going to war over.
1: Yes, yes. I'm happy to say it. in fact I'm I'm at Oxford right now writing papers on this stuff. Exactly. In fact, using academics now to justify some of my my uh, ideas. But, you know, these ideas, This these ideas, first off, haven't, uh, are not brand new. They've been around for a long time, used by various cultures. I mean, even look at civil rights. A lot of people accomplish aims through civil unrest or through different types of methods. And when you're talking about life versus death, um, then there's much more of a justification to things like war or to things like uh, extreme activism. And I, I have to say it, you know, if I knew Like, especially in my novel, The Transfamous Wager, which kind of sets up the landscape. If I knew somebody was purposely trying to withhold my ability to live indefinitely, I would consider that a form of involuntary uh, murder, something I've written about extensively. And so when you talk about those kinds of themes and threats, then you do have a reaction, I think, that's justified rashly to do, you know, uh, I guess, opposition to whoever's opposed. Just from a purely academic or logical point of view, I think there's a lot of justification for that. Now, I'm not in our environment. Thankfully, we live in America. We don't live under a a serious authoritarian regime. I mean, although some might argue otherwise. But, um, you know, the the point of the story is that we're not in that place right now. But if a government did try to say, Zoltan, um, you know, we don't like this idea. You can't live indefinitely and we're going to take away this science then I think there's real grounds for uh, opposing that uh, through almost any means uh, that uh, historically have been done.
0: Let me get a little more specific about what you've written and advocate. This is something you wrote in the Huffington Post in 2017, and I think it'll get our listeners an idea where you're coming from pretty specifically. This is the quote. The human body is a mediocre vessel for our actual possibilities in this material universe. Our biology severely limits us. As a species, we are far from finished and therefore unacceptable. The transhumanist believes we should immediately work to improve ourselves via enhancing the human body and eliminating its weak points. This means ridding ourselves of flesh and bones and upgrading to new cybernetic tissues, alloys, and other synthetic materials, including ones that make us cyborg-like and robotic. It also means further merging the human brain with the microchip and the impending digital frontier biology is for beasts, not future transhumanists. And that's the end of the quote. Is that what you mean by post-humanity? Well, you know,
1: technically, yes. And I think in a publication like the Huffington Post, I would say post-humanity is okay. But um, I, I mean it in the sense that the human body is frail. It's designed to die. We should become something different, something more grand. And uh, if you want to call it post-humanity or transhumanity or, you know, whatever you, your technical term is for, it's certainly where I hope to end up, where I hope my children end up, where I hope humanity as a whole ends up if, you know, individuals choose that. Now, maybe not many individuals such as yourself would not choose to upload your mind to a machine or become a cyborg or become a robot.
0: You got that right.
1: <laughs> there's, there's many people out there that eventually will and certainly want to become at least partial cyborgs because that kind of makes sense to them. I mean, who wouldn't want a robotic eye that can see 10 times better than your eye and can also, you know, do all sorts of other fun little things that maybe our phones do? I mean, I, I think a lot of the younger generation especially is going to desire those kinds of technologies.
0: Yeah, it's it's probably because uh, there's so much nihilism in the air, and and of course, no one's against uh, like prosthetics or things of that sort that that help uh, enhance uh, one's ability if there's been an injury or, or so forth. But it, it strikes me that you know uh, transhumanism is a materialistic ideology, and um, part of it is the materialism breeds nihilism. And that leads to a loss of hope. And so, what you're trying to bring to a materialist worldview is the concept of hope.
1: Yeah. And you, you had mentioned this earlier, speaking a little bit about whether transhumanism is an ideology or a religion or whatever it is. You know, I'm not 100% sure what you want to call it. I, I call it what I think it is, but it's certainly um, a, a, a life giving movement and certainly a kind of almost. I take it certainly as almost religious in the sense that I live it every day and I'm upholding all my future goals to where it can take me, in fact, overcoming death and all these other things. So in that sense, it is this great journey and it is this very important um, kind of thing that you want to incorporate all across your life and in every part and into your soul if there was such a thing. And I'm happy to make all those changes and to cross all those bridges. Now you might call that nihilism, you might call that selfish or you know, adm- you know, know, uh, utter individualism or whatever, but I'm not sure that any of those things have to do with hope. Uh, hope, in my opinion, going back to what you originally said is really just the idea of wanting a better life. And I'm not sure I'm actually hoping for this better life. I'm actually already seeing a lot of this better life through technology right now.
0: Uh, you mentioned earlier the singularity, and I think we should identify what that means for our listeners. What what is the? Um, this is almost an eschatological idea of some future moment in time where everything will change. It, and to me, it's like uh, the idea of the second coming, almost only a materialistic approach. What is the singularity?
1: Yeah. Well, first off, I agree with you. The, the singularity is this quasi spiritual concept that I it. First, I'll just explain it. The singularity is when artificial intelligence becomes so complex um, that it kind of takes off on its own, and intelligence in the universe is no longer even fathomable to the human brain. And the question is whether humans actually participate in the singularity or not, or it's just our inventions like AI that do. But the point of it is that you can't even really see how fast the technology is going because it's so much more sophisticated than the three pounds of meat on our shoulders. Um, However that says that it's one of the reasons why I don't actually speak too much about the singularity, though I usually bring it up just because it is an important concept to understand. A lot of transhumans do treat it as some kind of religious moment, you know, going to happen in the far future. But, um, You know, For me, transhumanism is much more grounded in where we are today. Are we able to help the blind? Are we able to get off planet and explore the universe? Are we able to overcome death so we don't have to ever say goodbye to our children? I mean, that's the transhumanism that I speak about. But certainly the singularity, uh, this moment in time, uh, coming maybe in the next 50, 100, 500 years, who knows, um, is is a very fascinating kind of quasi-religious idea.
0: Ray Kurzweil of Google is, of course, one of the major proponents of that. He thinks it's going to be here, I think, around 2035, um, which brings up an interesting point. When I first became aware of transhumanism, it was probably around 2002, 2003, and the ideas were mainly coming out of the high university, places like Oxford, Cambridge, Yale, those, those kinds of, uh, kind of theorot- theoretical academics. Uh, speaking in a very dispassionate way almost about these topics. Uh, today, it's really being driven, I think, by um, big tech, Silicon Valley, the Kurzweil types, the Elon Musk types, uh, and people like you who are, you're more of a, um, a, a, a you're a very intelligent guy, but I mean more blue collar. You're not, you know, pontificating from on high. You're actually coming at this from a more populist approach. Why do you think that shift occurred?
1: So, I agree with you you know and one of the things i've been fighting in the transhumanist movement is that really there is this um you know the academics have controlled it for for so long and they've been responsible for the dissemination of ideas whereas that you know any movement needs the public behind it needs people behind it, especially in a in a nation like the United States where you know, uh, 80% of people are still Christian and believe in an afterlife in our government, all of them, you know, go- politicians all believe in an afterlife. So I wanted to bring transhumanism into the public sphere, and especially into the youth, uh, where, you know, millennials and uh, Gen Zers, they all kind of take on and of course they did because they all want revolutions. And this is a great revolution to be involved in because, you know, just like I have two daughters, an 11-year-old and a 7-year-old, and both of them were using iPads before 12 months of old and able to navigate it. I mean, they're, the kids growing up today are in a completely different kind of set of circumstances. So I think transhumanism and, and the ability to incorporate technology in their li- lives in a very dramatic way is very natural for them. So I wanted to bring that out in kind of a popular sphere to grow the movement from out of the ivory towers and into the streets. And that's really what's important because when they're in the streets, then the politicians might start funding things like overcoming death. Or the entrepreneurs will take notice, as many did during my presidential campaign, and said, wow, what if Zoltan's right? What if we can do this in the next 50 years? Someone's going to make a fortune. And so from 2003, I mean, it must have been $100, $200 million going into transhumanism's life extension, Seth. And now we're up to $150, $200 billion. I mean, you know, and maybe going to $500 billion, they say, uh, by 2025. The, the amount of money going in is changing the technology itself and the movement.
0: Which I agree with you that that's happening, and I think it's one of the problems because, you know, it really is a rich countries or a rich world's dilemma. You still have people in Africa and and poor countries that where children die of measles and malaria hasn't been controlled. And it strikes me that pouring this money into transhumanism and the amount of money you're talking about, when perhaps that money would be better used to help our brothers and sisters who don't have our advantages. Um, really is a misdirection of resources.
1: And that is a a central complaint, uh, probably one of the most central, uh, against transhumanism, that uh, we're an individualistic kind of movement that focuses on ourselves. And as a result, it's very, uh, you know, uh, let's be honest too, it's also very uh, Caucasian dominated. It's also very male dominated. And uh, and these, I you know, as someone who's run for office, these do present serious problems to me. And I tried to explain that it's not good enough that people in Africa have cell phones but no access to water. We need to make it so that the cell phones can actually help them access water in some way. Therefore, there's kind of a marriage of these two technologies. But um, you know, it's so much easier said than done. And I can tell you that the, one of the big problems in the world is the world is moving so fast, uh, so you know, forward so fast while so many others are getting left behind. And uh, I think only- that's
0: the, so, that's the solipsism of the movement. I mean, it, I think the best thing that could happen, just for example, having been to Africa, would be a uh, continent-wide electrical grid. Um, and yet, yet, yet we can't get there, and people are are spending billions of dollars trying to live to be 150 or 175. And it's very, as you said, I, I, me, me oriented.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's no, no way around that. Um, hopefully there'll be a better balance in the future. But you have to understand, you know, you either kind of support capitalism or you don't. And uh, this is the way capitalism unfolds. You have some very wealthy people and they're the biggest drivers of the movement. And uh, they're, not, they're the ones who are pouring in billions and billions of dollars. I can assure you it's not the government right now. The government's still very hands-offish. The government doesn't want to declare aging a disease. They don't want to put too much money except from a military point of view. And that helps, don't get me wrong. But they're not interested in the transhumanist, transhumanizing, let's say, of its people. Um, and until you know, there's kind of a better balance between billionaires caring about the developing world as well as ourselves there's always going to be people like yourself that criticize the rich people for you know just wanting to live longer and not really taking care of the poor i personally think there could be a better balance a universal basic income some of these other ideas but it's a tricky it's a tricky subject because i also don't want to tell billionaires what to do with their money
0: you're um a libertarian in many ways. It's, uh, you have an interesting mix there. You once called yourself to me, uh, you said I'm an authoritarian libertarian, which, uh, strikes me as a bit oxymoronic, but, uh, I get what you're, what you're talking about.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, some people would say that's a left leaning libertarian. I'm pretty much there. I just think, um, you know, if it was up to me, for example, regarding Africa and some of the developing world, you know, there would be, um, maybe some greater controls in terms of wealth buildup of individuals, not necessarily taking money from them, but insisting that that money then refilter back into society in a way that actually helps people. And I I almost sound like Elizabeth Warren now, but it's not exactly like that. It's much more so that uh, I I really like how Bill Gates is doing things, where he takes a lot of his money and he tries to put it back into things that can help the world. I wish um, more people that were really wealthy could end up uh, doing that because that might be a much better balance for society moving forward. And if we don't do that, then the poor, and might who significantly outnumber the wealthy, could one day raise the arms up in their pitchforks and come after us. To get to the transhumanist future, we want to have equality, at least at an acceptable level, so that people don't want to have civil wars and fight against each other. And uh, that's where I think uh, my libertarian tendency seemed to fall apart a little bit there, as I insist a little bit more on government intervention to help out the, the seriously uh poor and, and like you know with homeless in california I, I just think homeless need to be placed in housing uh no matter what the costs are for uh, the populace maybe not no matter what the costs are but i certainly personally would pay a few extra percent of tax in order to have the ho- homeless completely taken away from san francisco and put into housing
0: the um issue of immortality, you, there are several suggestions. I think the most uh, notable one or the most popular one is that somehow uh, we will be able to upload our minds into cyberspace, into computers, and uh, therefore kind of um, be free from the um, corporeal aspect of our natures, the biology, uh, and 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 that would be a, a form of immortality. But it strikes me that that wouldn't really be you. I mean, if let's assume you could upload your mind you know, the data so that the software and the computer, which would of course be more complex than today's, um, were able to um, react to a a stimulus the way Zoltan fan would today. But that still wouldn't be you. That would be software. You wouldn't be there.
1: Yeah, yeah, but I mean, this is almost like saying, and I've seen some of your Facebook pictures when you were a young man, (laughs) that's not you because you're a different person. And yes, you've carried your memories, but so many other things have changed, and we all change. Even all our cellular content actually changes every, you know, few years or something like that. So we we're in a in a dynamic environment where it doesn't have to be perfect. What I want to know is that the Zoltan that's here talking to you, um, a significant, a, a huge portion of him continues on somewhere else, and if that's in the form of memories and zeros and ones and silicone, and whatnot then I'm quite happy with that, especially
0: knowing that... But but that would be no more meaningful than me looking at a, a motion picture of myself taken 10 years ago. That's just an image. It's not me. What if that image looks at you and says,
1: this is me, I swear, this is me, and I believe it. So if I have an AI and he looks at me, or an avatar, and he looks at me and swears he's Zoltan, speaks just like Zoltan, remembers just like Zoltan, and even though it's not necessarily identical to me... I would say, you know, I feel like we're bonded. That's, that bonding is enough for me to say that this technology is worthwhile. Now, don't get me wrong. If I could stay in human form right now for a long time with my brain at least being biological, I'd probably prefer that, or I'd li- at least like to preserve that in addition to my avatar so I don't get forced in this choice of having to choose. But if I have to choose, I would much rather take the, uh, the you know, then die, and the choice is either die or choose, then I'd much rather choose to be an AI avatar that's uh, a, a good, significant portion of myself and thinks like I used to and remembers myself as I was. Th- that's fine for me. I-, I don't need it to be perfect. It just needs to be enough so I'm satisfied.
0: Well, you you probably wouldn't even know it was there, or maybe you'd be looking from the great beyond and saying, no, no, that's not me, <laughs>
1: Yeah, no, I, I know what you're saying. This is the eternal the debate, and I've written a lot of articles on this. I just think the idea that we have to be exactly the same is uh, is wild. I just think about my marriage, you know? I mean, I've been married, I think, 13, 14 years, and my wife's quite a different person than when I married, and I am too. and uh, But that's okay. I mean, you can still continue marriage. You can still be in love. You can still raise families, even if people's values change, even if sometimes their memories change, even if sometimes their interpretations of things change.
0: Uh, Another uh, aspect that uh, transhumanism pushes quite a bit is elevating human intelligence. Uh, Why is that so important to transhumanism?
1: Well, you know, intelligence is the basis of everything that we sort of know and do and how we interpret all those things, you know, all our values. And so the more intelligent that we can become, I think the better. I mean, you know, it's like if we look at our intelligence of what we used to be when we were Neanderthals and whatnot, I'm glad we're that much more sophisticated. In fact, I look forward to being dramatically more sophisticated here in the next hundred years if I can make it that long because I want to be smarter. I mean, who doesn't want to be smarter? Um, and I think that's why there's a basis for transhumanism trying to increase its intelligence to to maybe even become the mind of God or as something we might perceive as the mind of God. How intelligent can we become?
0: And again, that's the, the Superman aspect of, of, I think, of the movement. But I always notice um, you're actually more humane than many of your colleagues. You know, you you do care about people. But the thing I don't hear transhumanists talk much about is love. And maybe that's because love is a virtue that has to be developed and can't be injected through uh, some kind of uh, nanotechnology.
1: So first off, I think you're correct to some extent. But I would also argue that in my interpretation, love is really just a bunch of, uh, you know, firing neurons that are saying, I'm in love. And so, I think when it comes to recreating that in an artificial intelligence or in an avatar in the future, it's going to be very simple. Get a robot to believe it's in love, and there's just nothing you can say against that robot that's going to change his mind. And therefore, you have to question well, who's right and who's wrong? Am I really in love as a human being? Or is the robot really in love? Or maybe we're both really in love, or maybe we're both really not in love at all.
0: But that's a reductionist view. That's a reductionist view of love. Love isn't just romantic love love is love for your fellow beings. Love is uh, a, a wide range of emotions. And, and it seems to me that the most important human attribute is love because that leads to humility and selflessness.
1: Well, I, I think you're talking about love as a, a greater interpretation maybe than I was saying, but let's get back down to the basic. It's still just neurons firing. You and I, uh, whoever we love at this moment, it's just a bunch of neurons that have fired. And as long as it's that, it's a machine-like entity. It's meat. And the meat, whether it's silicone ones and zeros or whether it's biological, is still just a process. And if we can recreate that process, whether it's through a machine or through biology, um, because it's not just artificial intelligence we might create, we're starting to create organisms that can kind of, cells that might be able to create future creatures, something sort of like Star Wars. If we can create future intelligent creatures, will we say they don't love, even if they are biological? So I think Love is still just the firing of neurons, no matter how we look at it.
0: That's taking the humanity out of being human, in my opinion. But let's move on. Um, you also, uh, the, we it, part of that quote, there's um, a lot of I, the idea. In fact, I think this was actually before the immortality part, this idea of personal recreationism. You know, I'll take a hawk gene and I'll I'll have uh, eyesight 10 times better than I have now, or I'll be able to develop superhuman type powers through, um, genetic engineering or through some kind of implants and so forth. It seems to me that's trying to be extraordinary without putting in any, any real effort.
1: Yes. Uh, and so here I I do, I probably agree with you more than some of the other statements, because I do think that one of the great things about transhumanism is that we get to become superhuman beings, but unless you earn that journey, you may not be able to utilize it in, in the real way. Like I, I kind of imagine that, uh, you know, okay. Let's even take a historical figure to probably a lot of your listeners, like Jesus. Jesus was able to overcome all these things: the time in the desert, the temptations. I mean, there's there's a certain sense in me that relates. He deserves. He deserves all these powers to you know raise the dead because he went through some of these trials. And I worry with transhumanists that if you just give them superhuman strength, super intelligence, they may not know how to use it. However, I'm also hopeful that we will be able to program people (laughs) to understand the journey in itself. So maybe the journey that you're speaking of where you earn this kind of of transhuman greatness or this kind of transhumanist powers can be programmed in so you will be able to use them humbly. Um, And I think they're, they're going through a lot of research with this right now in artificial intelligence, trying to teach AI to value the inputs that we put into it and to also have a sense of self that is commensurate with not just being a machine, but also humility as humans know it, where we have values. We don't want to hurt people. We're mammals at the core, and therefore we care about each other.
0: You also, in transhumanism, want to be able to engineer your progeny. And this moves beyond, you know, I'm doing this to myself. You're actually in favor of, and in, in the Transhumanist Bill of Rights, which we'll, we'll discuss, you're in favor of a, a right of, of parents, for want of a better term, to actually create their progeny to have the attributes that they want. That to me, you know, improving the idea of good and birth, that's just flat out eugenics.
1: Yes, yes. Well, and, and I, I'm happy to say I 100% support eugenics in the true term of the word, not in the Nazi sense of the word. I think eugenics is uh, a word that has been completely you know, uh, torn apart because of what happened uh, you know, 80 years ago in Germany. But the, the sense of eugenics, um, the ability to take tools... As human beings, and to create uh, progeny that are better than us, that uh, don't come up with cancer, that maybe have higher IQs, that can withstand disease better, that are smarter, can get more accomplished later in life. That's a great. That's a great thing to do. Eugenics in itself has always been a wonderful uh, thing um, uh, to do, as long as it's not misused by somebody, uh, you know, like Hitler.
0: The very belief system breeds misuse. I mean, you just said that somebody who's intelligent is a better human being. I would say some of the best human beings I've ever met are people with Down syndrome because of their capacity to love. Who are we to say what is better and what is worse in terms of human attributes and capacities?
1: I would say, you know, better comes down to obviously a personal opinion, But in my sense, and I've always been this way, and people call me ableist all the time because I think disabled people need to be fixed. In fact, I think myself needs to be fixed. It's not like I'm special or I'm not uh, suffering from all sorts of things. I have a a low IQ compared to Einstein. I'm not as physically strong compared to Olympians. I have to fix myself. I would like to improve myself. If my parents could have made me better at birth, uh, I would have been grateful to that. So I think um, there is this real sense of trying to better People. I mean, that's at the core of what transhumanism is. I know people will say, oh, that's not very against equality or, you know, we need to cancel all for this and that reason. But the core of transhumanism is bettering people. And the core of it is also recognizing that the flesh we have is not good enough. It needs to be improved. It needs to
0: be fixed. <laughs> that reminds me of an old Woody Allen joke. So a couple of ladies uh, go to a restaurant and one lady goes to a restaurant and her friend Agnes says, Gladys how was the new restaurant? And and uh, the other lady says, oh, it was terrible. The food was awful and such small portions. Uh, transhumanism's like that. You, you guys are saying, oh, we're not adequate. Humans aren't good enough. We're, we're just not uh, what we need to be. And it's too short.
1: Yeah. No, I mean, I agree with you. We, we are complainers. And we're we're curiosity addicts. We always want to discover something new. I mean, we're, we're, we're people that feel everything is messed up. And that's why we want to improve the the world. And I mean, a lot of people feel the world is messed up. I mean, this, transhumanism in this sense isn't very different than Christianity where we're all sinners, except transhumanists believe not only are we all sinners, but where our body is a sin in itself. Actually, probably I think Christian theology at the, at the base of it thinks the same with flesh. But the point is, how can you improve that? And, you know, Christians might improve it with the blessing or the grace of uh, Jesus Christ and then the Holy Ghost and whatnot, where transhumanists are going to try to improve that situation with science and technology.
0: yeah, but if you take a look at uh, whether it's Christianity or Buddhism, uh, or uh, Hinduism, uh, you know, people trying to improve their their uh, methods of living and their their characters. That is done through hard work and effort, maybe prayer, maybe meditation. You're talking about kind of uh, these ideas of technological fixes, and it, it takes away the personal responsibility to improve themselves and to de- and to, uh, to work uh, as a human being at becoming a, a more virtuous person.
1: Well, as I mentioned before, I do agree with you some— to some degree with this, because I worry that by giving superhuman powers to people, who haven't earned it, we're going to end up with a bunch of, I mean, this is what's happening, I think, to some extent, uh, with the younger generation in America, they've become very entitled. A lot of us older folks are being called boomers, because they, they don't want to maybe work as hard as we once did, whereas our, the generations before us worked even harder. And I think what's happening is, you know, you feel a sense of loss of values. However, at the same time, I think that isn't a reason to stop transhumanism. That's a valid complaint. But it doesn't mean in any way, just because of what you said, that I don't want to overcome death uh, or I don't want to become this great transhuman entity that can fly. You know, uh, off planet and do these other things. Cyborgs whatnot. So, I mean, your point might be valid, but I'm not sure how uh, it's going to change how I feel about the technology.
0: But what does that have to do with with engineering your children? I mean, you could let's just say uh, we find out found out that uh, find out that religious fundamentalism is a heritable trait. You know, the transhumanist uh, idea could say, "Well, I'm going to force my child through the sheer naked power of genetics to be a, a religious fundamentalist or to be a, a genius at the... The piano, uh, which takes away, it seems to me, the freedom of the children.
1: I I think there would be government regulations against doing things that would be negative. So you're not going to be able to say, oh, I want to make my child into a killer. But I think when you're talking about being the best at piano, first off, not everyone's going to be, if we all modified our children to be the greatest at the piano. Clearly, not all of them can be the greatest. There's still going to be a choice. And then there's going to be the choice for who really becomes the greatest after that. So by, by giving your, your children super traits doesn't mean it's going to be less competitive world in the end. I think there's going to be plenty of competition, just competition at a much higher level for all of human race.
0: Transhumanism also would grant rights uh, to robots, AI, cyborgs, and so forth. Why should any inanimate object have rights?
1: We come down to love, let's just say. If it's neurons firing and we're able to recreate that in a sort of uh, v- machine like environment where there's firings that are similar and create similar types of thoughts and similar types of actions, then what's to say that that love is different than the love that I have? I, I might not be able to de- decide the difference or see the difference at all. And so I think. If we can get to robots that are that sophisticated or objects that are that sophisticated, maybe it's not robots, maybe it's uh, new creatures that we create that are biological, I think we have a duty to assign them rights, rather, lest we have a, a civil rights conflict where people are, are upset that th- they can't do the things they want to do, even they're, though they're as a sophisticated us or maybe even more sophisticated.
0: And if they're more sophisticated than us, maybe they'll think that we're the inferior species.
1: Well, so this then we get into a whole different thing. This is why my transhumanism goes to a point, but we have to be very careful of AI. And if you want to ask, you know, one question, what's the great danger of what's the biggest danger of transhumanism? It's certainly that we let AI run wild, because it almost certainly will create at some points, uh, a type of intelligence that's smarter than human beings. And I would be uh, against that, because I, I want to be very careful that we don't uh, get eliminated just because we're not as useful or of something of that sort. So we have to be careful that we sort of stay at the top of the food chain. But it's very possible that um, a robot at some point in the future will, uh, you know, um, I guess be so smart that it's, it's smarter than us. And maybe we're the ones demanding rights for it again. I mean, who knows where the next 100, 200, 300 years can go, but it is a big danger.
0: You know, we have free will and we don't have to develop these technologies.
1: Yeah, but we want to because there's a lot of reasons to use AI. There's a lot of reasons to have designer babies, to eradicate, uh, you know, your tendency to get cancer or to improve IQ levels so you can be smarter and maybe enjoy things or read books differently and whatnot. And the same thing with machines. I mean, we want to create them to help us with our jobs, to make our lives easier to make, uh, to, to, to do things for us that uh, make, so we have more free time or leisure time or time dedicated to philosophy and things like that. So I think despite some of the dangers, I would move forward 100% um, with huge amounts of funding, both private and government funding on all angles of this stuff. However, I just think there are some dangers that, you know, uh, AI maybe needs some type of international where we, we work together, knowing that, this is a very dangerous thing if China gets a smarter AI than us first. I mean, there might be some real, not just countrywide uh, geopolitical issues, but actual humanity species issues at hand with AI.
0: Well, what you just said brought up a couple of points. The first, of course, is that um, it's not just, uh, you know, and I'm certainly in favor of developing more sophisticated computers and so forth, but uh, it's not just AI, but it's things like biotech. Um, the ability to uh, CRISPR to uh, to genetically alter any life form. We've already had the first genetically engineered babies, uh, which created a furor. And I suggest that it wasn't because of what was done, but when it was done. That is, uh, the before the biotechnologists could assure everybody that life is under control and all of that stuff. Um, the other thing that I, I, I want to mention is there, there, there are sometimes people who support transhumanism say things like my glasses, I wear glasses, that that's transhumanism because it has actually improved my ability to see. But that isn't transhumanism because it doesn't change my nature of my being. Would you agree that there's a difference between humans creating tools that help us achieve higher levels of uh, uh, sophistication and a performance versus changing the nature of the animal, if you will.
1: Well, I do believe there's there are two di- there are differences there. And I also believe that your glasses really wouldn't classify as transhumanism. What we usually like to say is it's the, the top 10% of the most sophisticated technologies out there. And when a technology falls outside of that 10% of being radical, it's really then becomes more into the mainstream. And uh, transhumanism is always on the cutting edge, but I think that you know the the distinction between what actually forms a part of your actual identity is very important. My my young uh, oldest daughter wears glasses, and she has quite bad uh, eyesight, and um, and uh, and really needs them. And so I, I do wonder, <laughs> to some extent, you know. When she's surfing or she's doing things like volleyball, they play a pretty critical part in her in her uh, her day to day life and what she can do. But at the same time, I don't think it's you know become something totally transhuman in the sense that it's really replaced uh, who she is. Now, when we start talking robotic eyes, I might see something different. I, I got to say that that's more transhumanism. But at the same time, I, I still don't see that as going outside of what it means to be a human being, maybe it, it's really going to say taking both eyes out is going to be when you cross into a, a transhuman threshold. I, I just don't think uh, uh, unless it's becoming something dramatically different, like real, your brain waves are all coming from a machine. Then I, I still think there's going to be a huge human part of yourself there.
0: Well, like we already have cochlear implants that help people uh, who can't hear to hear actually. Uh, Rush Limbaugh, maybe uh, the late Rush Limbaugh, may be the most famous person to receive them. You know, he went completely deaf and <laughs> still kept up with his talk radio show, which was pretty remarkable as a matter of human character and strength and perseverance. But then was able to hear again because of this uh, very sophisticated technology that 50 years ago didn't exist. So again, that's not that's not uh, changing the nature of the human being. That's just uh, uh, assisting uh, over to overcome a limitation.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, when transhumanism becomes really controversial, when it becomes elective, and I don't mean elective because of a medical, um, you know, issue. I mean elective, like if I was to cut off my right arm and put on a robotic arm just because I thought it was cool, and this is probably going to happen sometime soon with some biohacker or whatnot, that would be, in my opinion, very transhuman and maybe not even very intelligent at the moment because the, the robotic arm wouldn't be uh, smart enough to, to use. You know, when people usually say, what defines a cyborg? I like to say, well, it's probably when 50% of your organs have been replaced or 50% of your body has been replaced with something synthetic. Then you kind of cross over that. So I don't really make that big of a distinction. I use transhumanism as kind of an umbrella term to talk about the technology that's imbued and imbuing our lives and kind of becoming an integral part of it. But uh, we're already to some extent in the transhuman future. And at the same time, we're pretty far away from it, the, the total transhuman future that I imagine, when we might be uploading our brains or I might be marrying robots or something like that. Uh, uh,
0: somehow the, uh, Borg of Star Trek is coming to mind, <laughs> but, uh, let's talk about your idea for cerebral reconditioning as a tool of criminal justice.
1: Well, you know, uh, I was looking for a way to not, uh, support the death penalty because I really don't think killing people is good. Um, even if they've done terrible, terrible things. So I was trying to think, well, is there a way outside of that, a transhuman way outside of that, where we can not necessarily, you know, not support capital punishment? And it turns out that if we're able to recondition people's brains so that they really think different, um, and uh, then that would be a good alternative to capital punishment. Now, it's not something I would force on criminals, but as I was saying when, you know, on the campaign trail, do you support capital punishment? I said, well, I support developing technologies that would allow us allow uh, someone on death row to have a choice to be completely reconditioned or to, um, to you know, to, to die. And that way, at least there was an alternative to capital punishment for everyone uh, in America and around
0: the world. Yeah, but once you develop the idea of cerebral reconditioning, what makes you think it would be limited to criminals?
1: Well, <laughs> and that's a, a, a good point, but I got to say a little bit conspiracy theory, too. Uh, there's it's possible that it could be used on a whole wide range of. Of uh, diseases, uh, maybe kids with Down syndrome, for example. Maybe you're able to somehow mix up the brain or they would be able to be better or think better or something like that.
0: I, I, I reject the term better. You know, that's the same. I know
1: you do. I know you do. I totally, yeah. I, I and I, sub, I subscribe to that term. I, I know many people will dislike me and they call me an ableist and they say I shouldn't say that, but I firmly believe that everybody should be bettered if they can be bettered. We all have a moral right to that betterment. And um, in some cases when you know there's such a wide difference between uh, living uh, you know, your life like Down syndrome versus a regular person, I definitely think even more so we should go out of our way to try to help those people. Now, I'm not saying that I would support reconditioning of Down syndrome children. What I would support though, is if a parent wanted to do that, um, or if a Down syndrome child wanted to do that in the same sense that maybe I support euthanasia, which I know you do not. Um, so if people as adults or as people as parents Want to support this type of radical transition uh, to a better life? Then I I would support it,
0: and I would say you support it because of your materialism. That is, everything is, as you said before, it's all uh, just—you know—we're just a bunch of carbon molecules uh, uh, that that uh, think it's alive practically, Um, and uh, and I think that 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 kind of mindset actually leads to some very dark places, Uh, and I think that you know our listeners will aside, but I think you've talked about things that would lead to incredibly dark places. Well, there's no question
1: like what I just said regarding Down syndrome and the reconditioning that this does lead to hugely dangerous places from a a governmental point of view, because what if the government decided something was right and something was wrong, which again is kind of where I fall back on the libertarian scale, where I would either let parents deal with it or let uh, individuals that are cognitively able to deal with it make those own decisions. But I, I think um, there's no question that <laughs> everything we're talking about is subject for you know wide, wild, dark science fiction movies because this is this is the future and this is where people are going to have to make some incredibly ethical decisions as these technologies come to be.
0: I think you've got too much faith in human wisdom, frankly. Uh, let's let's get back to your uh, libertarian authoritarianism. Uh, you said that you believe that we should have ma- massive surveillance, uh, facial recognition, drones, AI, etc. Uh, to prevent crimes before they actually occur. Uh, Isn't that sort of akin to the Chinese social credit system, which is a tremendous arm of tyranny?
1: It is a a big arm of tyranny, but let me just at least, I'm not supporting China here. Uh, and I have, you know, run on campaign saying China's going to kick our butt if we don't do something. But you know, at all practical reasons right now, China is kicking our butt. Or be- butts. they're becoming a, a better, a stronger, uh, a more together society than us. Uh, you're going to see the Olympic medal counts change here in the future. You're going to see the military uh, change in the f- future here. You're going to see their wealth. I think the some big uh, institute already came out saying they're now wealthier than us. So. For better or worse, there is a system in place that is making that country quite a bit stronger. I mean, I hear they have more engineers Then we have uh, almost people at this point. But that said, I don't support their social credit system. But I think when it comes to facial recognition, there's an argument to be made that in order to help the human traffickers around the world, which number about 40 million, as well as to help crime, especially like, you know, I know you moved out of California, but uh, (laughs) you should see what's happening here in San Francisco, you would want AI facial recognition too. I mean, you can't even park your car in a protected garage anymore without it being broken into. The point though, is that I think AI facial recognition, a system specifically that forgets, let's say after 24 hours, the surveillance, never able to access it again for whatever reason, um, could be very useful to deter a lot of crime, as well as help a lot of people around the world who have been human trafficked, as well as stop domestic abuse of children and women and things like that. So there are reasons to use that in ways that might be very beneficial to people, as long as I think the, the footage that is taken is forgotten, and as well as there's really strict government control to not use it to completely invade your privacy.
0: You've also advocated the use of artificial wombs. In fact, I uh, wrote a piece, I believe it was in the New York Times, saying that you thought that was the answer to the abortion controversy. Explain that.
1: Well, sure. And, and as somebody who's coming from at least a partially a conservative perspective, at least especially fiscally, uh, that I, I am that way, um, I would say that there is a third option out there. Um, I'm not sure if the human trials have started yet, uh, but they've been doing a number of different trials in two different major universities where they've been on animals and very successful in lambs where they're taking a you know a very young lamb and putting it in a in a in kind of this bio bag and then growing it up to uh, have it born and be normal lamb and there are you know something like what six hundred million uh pre-birth deaths a year, because uh, premature birth deaths a year, um, you could save a lot of those children by doing something like artificial wombs. But I think at some point in the future, you also get this third choice for women. So if a woman, for example, didn't want to abort a child, but also didn't want the child, she might be able to give the baby up to her adoption, but have it carried in an artificial womb and that would satisfy a lot of conservatives and i think even the catholic church is having to look at this very realistically and say wait a sec is this something that we might have to support someday in the future they don't right now apparently but they also realize that if you're talking about life this might be a really good technological third way that answers the the abortion issue for conservatives
0: uh, that's where i i wrote a piece i think you may recall where i thought you were unduly utopian because uh, when women want abortions, it isn't because they don't want to carry the child; it's because they don't want the child, and they're not going to uh, be more likely to say, "Okay, well, let's, you know, use the artificial womb instead of me." Of course, artificial wombs could save lives too, as you said, and uh, and and they probably will come online. But I do think that we have to be careful because you have. Um, the idea that well, perhaps we should just have all our children born through artificial wombs, well, you know that de- degrades w- the contributions mothers give in gestation, which isn't just being a uterus. Uh, there's, and in addition to the um, uh, you know hormonal issues and and so forth, I think there's also a, a the love bond that's created uh, through that act of mothering, and and I don't think technology can replace that.
1: Well, probably technology can't replace the mothering for sure, at least not anytime near in the future, but it can replace maybe... The, the couple glasses of wine or the cigarettes that the mother drinks because she doesn't care enough for her child. It could also protect it in terms of, of uh, you know, ensuring that the woman, that a mother has a, a more lasting and stronger career because she doesn't have to take time off for maternity leave or take time off for the pregnancy. So there's actually a lot of feminists out there that would be supporting um, some version of the artificial womb because it might mean that there'll be more equality in the workplace because they don't have to worry so much about this thing growing inside them, which you're right, takes a Lot of this time.
0: thing growing inside them this thing this transhuman thing <laughs> oh my gosh <laughs> baby <laughs> well
1: <laughs> i think half half the world's gonna say thing or or you know they'll say fetus of course
0: well that's a that's a medical term but they don't call a born baby a neonate so i mean it's um, what well, we, we can talk about that another day one last question uh, and then because i know we're running out of time here you have written quite a bit about the government's role in this, and it seems to me that you've, you've described, you know, there's a lot of uh, entrepreneurship and the, the, the billionaire class from biotech and, and big tech uh, cont- contributing, but you also seem to believe that government should be part of this.
1: One of the main reasons that I would like government to be part of this is because when it comes down to research and funding of medical science, I mean, they're the big dogs in the room. And if they don't get on board that, let's say, aging is disease and want to put billions and billions of dollars, in National Institute of Health, if they don't get on board, then it's it just doesn't get done in the same way uh, we would, you know, it can be done as effectively. So without politicians, without a government, and without the, you know, the big bank on board uh, to fund this stuff... It's left all up to individuals and it just takes too long. I mean, somebody like myself almost certainly won't make it to a point when they can kind of reverse aging in me because there just won't be enough money. Now, if the government was to get involved and there'd be an American policy um, to say, you know, it's our goal to defend uh, the lives of all Americans and to keep them alive, even as they grow really old, then that would be something different because all the pharmaceutical companies, all the research, all the universities would get a lot more money from the government. So I do support the government. Getting involved in this, despite the fact that um, you know, kind of goes against some of my other libertarian fiscal policy. Uh,
0: I I don't know how we if that ever became policy and and the and, and a right as the uh, transhumanist Bill of Rights says to actually access these technologies, how we would ever afford it, because healthcare is already what is it nineteen percent of the GDP. Uh, if you guys had your way, I think it would be forty five to fifty percent. Well,
1: you know, that's how it seems. But a lot of us think that, at least in the transhumanist community, if the government was to get involved in eliminating disease, like as the goal, and I don't mean like, you know, giving a ton of money to Pfizer to do research so that they can kind of prolong cancer diseases for decades and decades. I mean, I, I mean, I'm not a big fan of a lot of the medical research going in, because I think a lot of it is there to fix problems instead of eliminate problems. I mean, transhumanist goal is not to fix heart disease. Transhuman's goal is to eliminate the heart entirely out of the human equation so that we have something else that is much better at pumping blood, maybe just a, a, a synthetic, complete you know, a pump. But the point of the story is uh, a, a real government would look at those kinds of things and instead of kind of trying to do band-aids all across the healthcare system, it would say, can we eliminate disease altogether? Can we eliminate problem organs? Can we eliminate these things to get us to the transhuman age? And I think you'd find that the healthcare bill would be a lot less if we were actually humans that were disease-free and moving into the cyborg part stage of of humanity.
0: And a little uh, surreptitiously, not surreptitious um, kind of uh, fun is you are creating transhuman wine. Tell me about that.
1: One of the things I've been trying to do, and you probably noticed this because we haven't talked since uh, the presidential campaign is that I took a step back and said, okay, I need to get some bigger things on my resume that kind of resound a little bit more with running for office, winning office, hopefully one day. And uh, you know, the first one, uh, which I'm doing now is I'm taking a graduate degree at, o- at the University of Oxford um, in philosophy and ethics. So that's really fun. But the second thing was kind of formula- uh, forming this wine business. I've had a couple wineries here and there, but now they're becoming centered around putting nootropics into wine and trying to create a real justifiable business
0: what, what what is that what is that you just said the entropics what is that
1: no- nootropics they're they're kind of brain drugs um you know specially specialized brain drugs that are supposed to enhance your cognitive abilities and things like that and so i have friends at berkeley phds and whatnot that kind of like have created these things and um so we're trying to mix some of the wine with it now whether the wine actually makes you smarter this is very questionable it's still wine um but it's a fun concept, and it's really useful in terms of sending it out to award uh, tasting competitions, stuff like that, in in spreading the transhuman name and spreading the transhumanist agenda. And so, a real part of the transhuman wine business that I now have, which is Bordeaux, Argentina, and Napa Valley, uh, there are wineries and all of them, vineyards or wineries and all of them, um, is trying to spread the transhuman message through a bottle of wine.
0: Like I said, you're one of the best self-promoters I've ever come across. Well, Zoltan, thank you very much for being with me. It was a real pleasure. uh, And I assume that we'll be hearing more from you in the coming uh, years on trying to never have to die. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a great talk. Thanks for listening to Humanize from Discovery Institute's Center on Human Exceptionalism, where human rights meet human responsibilities. Discover all the good work of the Center on Human Exceptionalism by visiting discovery.org human. We can only do this work speaking on behalf of human life, human thriving, and our exceptional place in this world and our cosmos with your support. We invite you to make a one-time gift today and to consider starting a monthly gift to support the Center on Human Exceptionalism and this show. Wherever you're listening to Humanize, please take a moment to rate and review the show. You matter. Your actions matter. Be bold, be exceptional, and be back soon.